You are listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, have you ever had um, a moment where you just wanted to have a cosmic remote control and just stop time? Have you had any of those where, where something is happening that is so good, so right, and you just want to hit the pause button? I had one um, that I remember when we moved here, so we just hit eight years here, actually, eight years, and, um, and we had a, uh, it was our first Christmas here, and we had, um, our kids were obviously littler then, and, uh, and we had just done all the Christmas Eve services, we, uh, we do a sleepover down in our bedroom, and the kids sleep on the, we get our comfy bed, the kids sleep on the floor in their sleeping bags, I wake them up with um, Christmas music in the morning, an old Rich Mullins song that they think is silly, but I love it. Um, and we wake them up, we, get, we got up this morning, and they were all excited, and we went up, and we've got the tree and presents, and, and I mean, it was just like, it was one of those moments. The kids weren't fighting, they were nice to each other. Uh, I mean, everything, was, they, they do a good job with that, but it was just, it was just great. Nikki makes this stuff called, um, called monkey bread. Do you know what that is? Oh, oh, that's like a thing. Okay, I didn't know what it was. I was like, it's bread made out of monkeys or something. I didn't know what it was when she first said it, but it's not. It's, I don't even know what it's made out of. It's just made out of goodness. That's what it's made out of, I think. And so she's making that, and it's hot, and it's awesome, and then the kids are there, and then especially for this, like, Texas boy, as we're sitting here, I'm going, man, this just doesn't get any better, and the windows are open, and then on cue, God makes it snow, and it's just da 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 And we didn't have that in Texas. We had one year, I remember, Everybody was talking about what a white Christmas it was because we had a horrible ice storm. And I was like, this is not a white, this is not what we're talking about here. And so I just remember at that moment, just looking and just going, oh, thank you, Lord, as we're, as we're celebrating this and I'm just seeing like so, so, many, so many boxes of things that I would dream were just kind of checked in that very moment. So I was looking for that pause button. There's other times, perhaps, because you have times like that too. I'm sure you have the pause button times. There's other times where you want to hit the fast forward though. Could be something simple like I'm just in a conversation with someone that I'd really like to get out of and zzz, you just want to fast forward through it. Could be something, maybe a time in life where you're, that you're walking through that's bringing you the greatest of, of sorrow. And so, all the, or anything in between there. And so what do we do if we're at a spot where all the boxes are checked it's easy for me to praise God. What if they're not? What about if I want to hit the fast forward button instead of the pause button? What do we do in those times? And that's what the psalmist here is actually doing. He is going to give, I think, the, the most simple key to say, how can I rejoice? How can I praise God whether or not all the boxes of my little dream are checked or not? And you just heard, you heard it read as the call to worship, and then you just heard the rest of it um, read just a moment ago. Um, this, is, this is a psalm that was used in the public worship of God. And it starts, he says, shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Now, um, those three words, shout, sing, give glorious praise, and then say to God are plural and they are also very verbal, if you think about it. This is good for God's people to get together. We do this together. We worship God uh, together, and we do, there's things together that are different from when we're apart. That's what this is for. This is gather as God's people and cry out in praise to him. And then he says, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. 
They sing praises to your name. When we get together, it is good and it is right for us to praise God. We do it uniquely together as opposed to what we do when we are uh, by ourselves. In fact, you just saw this morning, you saw a great example of that. You get to see the baptisms that even if you're going, I, I, don't, I don't know them or I vaguely know them or whatever it might be, uh, there's something in you that can just feel like, um, like, like this, is, this is us, this is, this is our church, this is God's people and we're together. And so if you notice when I baptize, I don't say, I baptize you, I say, if I remember, I say, we baptize you. Because even if I'm the one doing it or Jim was doing the other one, um, it's not really me doing it, even though I'm physically doing it. It's we as a community are affirming this person's faith in Christ. There are great things when we come together to worship him. And then he's going to give the answer, and here it is. Why should we worship God? Why when we come together or individually? But here, why when we come together would we worship God? And he's going to give a reason. He says for his deeds that he has done. Here's what he says, verse 5, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man, meaning mankind and generation after generation after generation after generation after generation. So why do we praise him? Come and see what he has done. Look at his deeds, how awesome they are, and not just kind of a one, one and done kind of thing, but he has done this generation after generation after generation. And then he's going to give two examples. But here's what I picture. Like I picture the people of God sitting there worshiping. And I just picture the, a, 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 a little Hebrew girl there by her dad who just heard, praise him for the deeds that he has done. And I picture her just sort of giving a little tug. Dad, is that, uh, is that true? Has God done amazing things for us? And I just picture this dad just getting down and looking at her and going, let me just tell you. And he gives two examples right off the bat. Verse 6, it says, he turned the sea into dry land. And then it says, uh, they passed through the river on foot. He turned the sea into dry land and they passed through the river on foot. Okay. So let me try and describe what's about to happen. Pastors are very good at taking something simple and making it complicated. I want to try and make it simple. So here's the simple thing that he is going to say. He is going to say to this little hypothetical girl I just made up, he's going to say, worship God because of his amazing deeds that he has done. And he's going to give two examples. The turning the sea into the dry land, that's the account of the Exodus, um, and then they passed through the river on foot. Most people think, and I, I, I agree with this, they don't, they don't think that this is two references to the crossing of the Red Sea, Moses and the people. Most think, and I agree, that this is one reference to the crossing of the Red Sea, and then the second one has slightly different language, they passed through the river on foot, is a picture of, you remember um, the Exodus happened, and then they wandered in the wilderness, and then they were to get to the promised land, they had this little thing in the way called the Jordan River, and so God did a similar thing, that he had uh, the Ark of the Covenant went out in the water, and the water pulled back again, and the people crossed the river again. So I think this is two events that he's talking about here. The awesome deeds that they, they are remembering, he turned the sea to dry land and they passed through the river on foot. All right, so let me, let me try and sum up what's happening and then I'll go back and explain it. I believe what he is saying here 
is these two events, the exodus when they were in Egypt and he miraculously brought them out, and then the generation wandered through the wilderness, hadn't experienced that, and now they have to get in the promised land and he does a similar thing, pulls the water back and they walk through into the land, are not just about the leaving of Egypt and the crossing into the land, that they are also pictures of spiritual realities. It is a foreshadowing of something that is to come. And I'll, I'll tell you what it is, and then I'll go back and explain it. That the exodus, being um, freed from the enemy that you can't possibly defeat, Israelites, Egypt, mighty, mighty Egypt, mighty, mighty Pharaoh, you can't possibly defeat them on your own. You are captives and you are enslaved there. The picture of God getting them out is a picture of God's triumph over sin, Satan, and death. And the picture of them getting into the promised land is not just about them getting into the land, but it is a picture of heaven, if you will. It is the land that awaits us after this time. And so I'll show it to you, but what he just said is this. He said, we're going to think back on the deeds of God, and I want to show you this is a picture of our salvation that we have, what God did at the cross, what Jesus Christ did through his death, burial, and resurrection, the future promised land that awaits us. That's what this is a picture of. And what we're going to do as Christians is realize that what he's doing is saying, if that happened in history, then when Jesus comes along and explains the salvation that he offers, the things that are unseen, the things we can't see, he says, remember the things that were seen? You remember the miraculous salvation that you could see? Now in the New Testament when Jesus says the salvation of our sins, we can go, I know it's true because of what he's done in the past. And so this psalm is all about think back to the deeds of God, but we have New Testament eyes to say um, those that are in Christ are saved, we are forgiven from our sins, that Satan has been conquered, and that we will be with him for all eternity. All right? And if we let that sink in our souls, that's the biggest box that needs to be checked. All right, let me show it to you. All right, this will hopefully make sense as we get going here. So he turned the sea into dry land, and they passed over the river on foot. So the, the crossing of the Red Sea is this picture of um, salvation for, for God's people. It's a picture of what Jesus has done, the victory of Jesus. Crossing into a place that you don't deserve after wandering in the wilderness. Do you start to see the parallels to the Christian life? That, that he has saved us from sin, Satan, and death. We now live in the interim in this place where we don't belong. This is not our home, but we know that the promised land ultimately awaits us. Let me just remind you of the Exodus account. It's in um, Exodus 14, 15, more than that, but especially there. Um, they are um, enslaved by Pharaoh and the mighty power of Egypt. And Pharaoh did, I mean, he did everything you could to try and oppress these people and at different times exterminate them completely. And God just kept watching over them, kept watching over them, kept watching over them, kept watching over them. And then if you remember the guy that he sends, Moses always gets a really good rap. I don't know that he should get that great of a rap because do you remember when, uh, when God came to him and said, you're gonna go set my people free? Remember what he started saying? I'm, I don't talk very well. Maybe I'm not the guy. I don't know if I should be the one to do it. Can you send Aaron instead? And he was the most reluctant one to go and be the instrument that God used to set his people free. So Moses goes, and if you remember, it is, it is um, plague after plague after plague, demonstration of God's power, God's power, God's power, God's power, 10 different times. And it kept saying that all these things happened to the Egyptians, but then it says where Israel was, 
they were safe. So you have the, the um, uh, boils, for example, but where Israel was, it was safe. The hail that hit Egypt, where Israel was, it was safe. You constantly see the protection of God over his people. God just working miracle after miracle after miracle, where at some point, like, and probably very quickly, Israel has to be going, we cannot possibly save ourselves. We can't possibly defeat this enemy. They have no hope on their own. And so God worked miracle after miracle, and then finally what happened is, if you remember, the Passover lamb, that the blood of the lamb was spilled, it was put on the doorpost, and so death passed over the Israelites, but it hit the firstborn in all of Egypt. Now, the New Testament helps us understand some deeper realities of what's going on there. It says in Hebrews 11, by faith Moses kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And the language he's using is the idea of the blood of the lamb keeps the destroyer from taking God's people. You start to see the New Testament parallel? That's what this is about. This is, he is crying out, trying to say, this is a picture of what happened in the New Testament, that the blood of the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, covers us, and so our biggest enemy, sin, Satan, and death, has no power and no authority over us. We belong to Jesus Christ if we are in him. Paul even goes so far as to say, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In other words, in the Old Testament, they were saved by the blood of the lamb over an insurmountable foe. Jesus rose from the grave, gave his blood, and he conquered our enemy. And so they're looking and going, if you remember the deeds of God and what he's done, the things you can see, the things you can line up in history, then when it gets to supernatural realities in the New Testament of, of I, am, I am forgiven, I am justified, I am in relationship with Almighty God, you can look at those and say, are those true? Yeah, do you remember the deeds of God? He already gave us a foreshadowing of what Christ was going to come and do. And so we look back at the deeds of God and rejoice in the salvation that he offers. Then you've got the idea of, if you remember, going into the promised land, they're crossing over the Jordan. This is the second one where it says they passed through the river on foot. So they, they crossed over the Jordan on dry ground. And so they're going into the promised land. It's the idea of crossing into the, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. This is supposed to be a picture of the eternity that awaits those who are in Christ. It's a, it's a foreshadowing of it. It is not a complete one. That doesn't come till later, but it's a picture of what awaits the believer in Jesus Christ. And here's how I know. Because the same in Hebrews 11, it, it helps us understand what happened when they were getting the promised land. It talks about Abraham and his descendants, and it says, as it is, they desire a better country, a better country than even the promised land was going to give them. That is a heavenly one. You see what he just did? He just said it's not just about that land. It is about the ultimate heavenly land. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And then it says, for he has prepared for them a city. For people of God, the heavenly city awaits. We remember the deeds of God and what he's done. And you see it point towards the spiritual reality that one day will be with him forever. 
in our um, weekly Bible studies now, we're studying Revelation. I've told the crew, I said, I'm just going to cry all through chapters like 21, 22, because it's so moving, describing the eternal place of the Christian, where evil can never, ever enter, a place where there's no need for any light, because God will be its light. There will be no more tears, no more evil, no more disease, nothing that robs our joy at all when we're finally with him. God has done supernatural deeds in the past, so then as he, is, uh, as he is pointing us towards the salvation that we have, is Satan really under the authority of God? Is he really defeated? Did, did Jesus really rise victorious over sin, Satan, and death? Yes. We think back to what God has done, and as Christians, we can look and say, we have a picture of our salvation, and we have a picture of where we'll be for all eternity. And it's not just those two things, by the way. The entire Old Testament is pointing towards the reality of Christ and what he does. In verse 8, it says this. It says, Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. This is over and over throughout Israel's history. God has demonstrated himself. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, and look how it ends. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. The Old Testament realities, the historical actions, the things that happen are supposed to point when Jesus gets on the scene to the supernatural realities of what he's come to do. This is, um, if you remember Abraham and Isaac, when he goes to, to sacrifice his son in the Old Testament, we're supposed to read that story and go, Wow, the thing that Abraham loves must be so, so great if he is willing to sacrifice his own son for it. In other words, he loved God that much that when God said, sacrifice your own son, he was willing to do it. Now, if you don't know the story, God held him up and provided a ram for the sacrifice instead, but Abraham was demonstrating how much he loves God. We're supposed to look at that and go, wow, if he's willing to give his son his only son, that must mean he loves whatever he's sacrificing it to or for so much. And we're supposed to look in the New Testament and go, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Amen. If we think back to what God has done, and then we start reading with New Testament eyes, you start going, God loves me, God loves us that much. The temple sacrifice was pointing towards the final sacrifice of Christ. David and Goliath, this is the one I always use because it drives me nuts, that David and Goliath is not a story about if you're just strong enough and just call on the name of the Lord, you can do now whatever you want to do in life. That's not what the story is about. It's a story of the big enemy of God's people, Goliath, that is out there, and David in that setting is the Christ figure that goes out, and all the little scaredy-cat Israelites are over here on the side, and David walks out and defeats him. This is a picture of Jesus Christ and what he does for the enemy that you and I can never defeat. All throughout the Old Testament, he is pointing towards what Christ would come to do. May I implore you to read your Bible. May I implore you to get to know God through his word because as you do, what you start to see is over and over and over the salvation that he's provided, the eternity that awaits, and all of a sudden you're walking through life and all the boxes aren't checked as perfectly as we want them to be. But you can be sustained through it because that biggest box is checked. 
I'd also just point out oftentimes we avoid the Old Testament. I don't know, I, I make that general statement. That may or may not be true. But um, man, get to know the Old Testament and look how it points forward to Christ and what he would come to do. It, it's important for us to just be amazed and stirred and moved by what he has done. And you and I will never be amazed by what he has done if we don't know what he has done. And so here the psalmist is saying, remember the deeds of God. And we can look and say that points us forward to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us as well. He says this then, he shifts from we to me. He says, <clears throat> I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings and fattened animals. With the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats. This is um, the psalmist saying, because of what you have done, I will now offer sacrifice. There was, a, um, there was a guy, when he lived in Texas, there was a guy that I talked to that was going on a trip. I don't remember where it was. It was an island that I'd never heard of. So it was like some sneaky rich person island. I had no idea what it was. And he was telling me he was going, and he was describing it. And I thought, oh my gosh. And it's like the most down-to-earth guy. So he was almost like sheepishly telling me about the secret island or whatever. And, um, and, but he was just, they were about to go do that for, I think it was spring break or maybe summer trip or something. And he had told me about it, and then um, I saw him, you know, two or three weeks later, and I said, hey, tell me about your trip. How was your trip? You know, I hadn't seen you. And he sort, of, he sort of beat around the bush a little bit and didn't really answer it, and I didn't understand why, and I thought, I hope everything's okay, and I, I, I got the sense he didn't want to talk about it, so I changed, he changed topics, and I just went with him. Um, and then uh, his, his, you know, wife came up behind him, and we, we were just all talking, and she said, did you tell him what we did, you know, a few weeks ago? And I wanted to go, no, he didn't. He was a little dodgy about whatever you did. And um, this guy had basically said, um, and the wife had been praying for him for a long, long time, and this guy has just started to go, am I a Christian or not? You know, and he was like, I am. So he, he got this idea of like sacrifice, and he had this incredible vacation planned, and he sat down with his wife and either two or three kids, they were pretty little, and, um, and said, instead of going to this island and going on this trip, I had to get this out of him. He didn't want to tell me. Instead of going on this trip, he said, we went and got a hotel in downtown Dallas where a lot of homeless people would live. And we stayed there for a week. And we lived among them. And uh, I'm giving him words now. But we, we lived among them and we served them and got to know them. I was thinking... That means you didn't get to go to the island. That means your kids missed out on that. You, you, you work really, really hard. You do very well. You should get this. And, and then as a result, basically what he was saying was, um, I realized I don't sacrifice anything. And so we felt it. And they didn't go on the trip. Instead, they went on a little trip to downtown Dallas among the homeless. Very different experience for the week. But he wouldn't change it for the world. I wonder, I wonder how much if Christians today have a concept of what it means to sacrifice. I think um, in some simple ways, like if someone's in need and there's everything in me going, I am tired, I don't want to have that conversation, hopefully someone else will have it. If I'm thinking of a life of sacrifice in response to what God has done for me, I'll probably have that conversation. 
I think, you know, we talk about um, giving to the church, and there's quite a bit, uh, like, one of the things that pastors have to think about is um, generally, culturally, what happens is people go, I will have my life, and if I have some leftover, then I will be, um, then I will give it. Instead of going, man, what would it look like to just go, we are just, we are sacrificially pooling our resources together for the kingdom of God. Tonight, we're going to, um, at Fireside, for our middle school and high school, they're going to talk about um, serving. We're going to have a few services coming up over the next few months or something where there's going to be a lot of young people that are going to be serving communion and reading scripture and ushering and all that kind of stuff. And I, I know what's going to happen. If they're like me when I was that age, when you talk about serving, there's something that immediately goes, well, do I have time for that? What kind of a commitment is that? Instead of going, I want to serve. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to sacrifice whatever it is. That means time. That, that actually is honestly harder for some people. It's harder for me to say, I'm going to sacrifice my time to do some of these things. We're called to a life of sacrifice in response to the good deeds that God has done for us. And this is the verse. This is the verse that I read every Sunday. Every Sunday before the service, I walk around in here and I pray, 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 pray. Not, it's not because I'm a humble person, it's because I'm a prideful person, and that helps me be humble. I need that. So this, uh, this morning, for example, I was walking and doing that while I was checking because we had a little leak in our baptismal. That was fun. Um, we were praying, God, hold the sides up, and he did. He's good. Um, but as I'm walking around, every, I, I don't know why I just found this verse. I've read the Bible through. I've read Psalms through a bunch, and about a year or so ago, this verse just popped out at me, and I've said it every Sunday ever since. And this is for, they teach preachers this, anybody that's teaching a Bible study, it's Psalm 66, 16. And he says, come in here, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. If you want to know a little secret, we, we pastors are pretty good about standing up and going, hey, you guys need to go love your enemies, while all the while, I don't really care about my enemy. In fact, I hope bad things happen to him. Go love your wife as Christ loved the church. And then if I'm, but if I'm not, doing that first and foremost, but I can still somehow stand up and say, well, you ought, to, you ought to do that. Hey, don't get so caught up in politics that that becomes your king, Christ is king, and then you get to know me personally, or if I just got something deep down that says, I think whoever's in the Oval Office or whoever's in Congress or whoever, I think they're king. And what the, one of the first things they teach you is if you want to get of any impact on anybody else's life, it's you first. And I always want to be a man that stands up and says, when I'm looking at these texts to go, let me tell you what God has taught me through this. Let me tell you how I've been living this over the past week so that you too can hear it and know it and live it in your own life as well. In other words, for me to say, let's live a life of sacrifice. If I'm not, boy, does that fall flat. Boy, is there hypocrisy in that. So I want to be the person that says, if I'm going to call other people to do it, me first. And if you want to know, how can I actually share the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done with other people, you can, you can have this verse too. Let me tell you what he has done for my soul. Let me tell you what he has done for me. You and I can rest in our salvation. If you're a Christian, if you're in Jesus Christ, you can rest knowing that there's picture after picture after picture in the Old Testament pointing towards the salvation that we have, and we can rest in that, and then we grab people and just go, let me tell you what he has done for my soul. Let me give you one example of this that I love. It's from John, 4, or John 1, excuse me, John 1. 
Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and it says he found Philip, and he said to him, and now in America, we would go, Philip, uh, why don't you, I'll be your rabbi, and you come after me, and here's why, Philip, is because you'll learn from me, and I'm the son of God, and it will be good for you, and culturally, this is appropriate in what you do, and really, Jesus just goes to Philip and says, follow me, come and see. So Philip, his call is, follow me. And then it says, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And uh, again, I think if we're in America today, it would might be, did you not just hear me? This is Jesus of Nazareth and Joseph. And let me, let me, let me um, back up and just tell you all about him and everything about him. Let me give you the sales pitch on why you should come and follow him. And instead, you know what he says? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says to him, come and see. Amen. Come and see. This is the Christian life. This is evangelism. This is how we share our faith. This is how we encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ is we remember what God has done. We know what it points to in our own salvation. We live a life of sacrifice. And instead of, I just need to win argument after argument with people to just go, come and see and let me tell you what he has done for my soul. 